Welcome to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast with your hosts, Richard Hill and Matthew Darlitz. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. I'm Matthew Darlitz, Editor-in-Chief of the Science of Psychotherapy and as always here with Managing Editor and Good Mate Richard. Hi Matt, I look, I'm here, I'm still a good mate. Phew, that's a relief. Chris, (laughs) uh, otherwise why would I be here? It's just, we're we're just bound together by all this wonderful information, this wonderful stuff that we we keep coming across and keep expanding and exploring. of course, which we tabulate in our beautiful new book coming out in in, in March, plug, 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 uh, The Practitioner's Guide to the Science of Psychotherapy. So hopefully... Uh uh, grab a copy now. Get a get a pre get a pre release. Absolutely. Um, but but we'll have that out. But but we'll be doing lots of explanations and and um, extrapolations of it over the next uh, oh probably through the whole year, which is which is terrific. Fantastic. Well, Richard, today we're uh, going to have a chat to one of your old mates. Yeah, another old mate. <laughs> but this is a, this is an old Australian mate. Is an old Australian mate who's, who's run off and gone to another country. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. Uh, so we're going, to, we're going to talk to psychiatrist Dr. Stefan Nespoor. Uh, he he has run away from Australia to uh, to Canada, living on a lovely island over there. And uh, he introduced us to the cerebellum. Well, he didn't introduce us to the cerebellum. We've we've known about the cerebellum for a long time, but but he's highlighting the cerebellum to us. Um, which has been a, like a pet area of the brain, which he's been very interested in for a number of years. And I must admit, it's it is a part of the brain which I haven't paid much attention to, Richard. Hmm. And and Stefan has, has brought us back and uh, uh, given us a focus and and so uh, today we'll talk we'll we'll just bring it back bring it to life bring it mm. bring it back a bit energetically and I think there's some wonderful things that uh, uh, ideas that that Stefan has over over his time so I'm looking forward to having a, a, a chat to him but I think it's it's sort of in the evening with him because I'd, I'd like him to take his stuff outside and his camera outside and show us the island but I don't think we're going to get that. <laughs> Okay, well, let's uh, let's jump across to Gabriola Island in uh, Vancouver. Dr. Stefan Nespoor, thank you so much for joining us here on the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. How are you? Good, good. And of course, I'm here, Stefan, Richard. Uh, after you're not in Australia, where on earth have you gone? <laughs> I've gone to Gabriola Island, which is one of the Gulf Islands just off Vancouver. And about fifty k's out, outside of Vancouver, yeah, uh, yeah, and it's a it's a really beautiful area uh, because uh, you know as we mentioned in the introduction, you were you were uh, uh, originally from Australia, but uh, you've done your your a uh, lot of work in various places around the world, and now you're over there in Canada. But but the big thing, and we used to talk about it. We've had a, you know some great coffees over the years. I remember one down in Black Model Bay. We sat there and talked about this thing, the cerebellum, this funny little lumpy thing out the back of us. Uh, we've done the article, this beautiful article that uh, you've you've uh, shared with us in the magazine. Can you tell us a little bit just to get us in the swing? Because I think a lot of people, this will be an introduction, really, sort of, oh, I, I didn't know the cerebellum was this important. Can you give us a bit of a little bit of a, a historic build-up and then just uh, some of the nature of why you think this is so important a subject to put forward. 
Well, the cerebellum's, you know, at the base of the brain. It's like this little cauliflower nodule at the base of the brain. And when I was a medical student, you know, we were just taught that it was there for vibration sense and and you tested when you tested reflexes and you tested for... I had this general sense that it would had to do with three-dimensionality of things and reflexes. And it was it was there, it was an important thing, but then it was relegated because it always seemed that these other parts of the brain were much more important and it didn't really seem to have that much function. But it was only when I left medical school and I got interested in psychotherapy and always had this uh, neurophysiological view of things, that I started to see therapists doing really interesting therapy um, and they just didn't do talking therapies and they did therapy in three-dimensional space. And I said, well, what's, what's the organ in the body that has a lot to do with three-dimensional space? And being cerebellum. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and I think that one of the things that uh, and you you know you triggered my thinking about this over the years, where we become of course interested in areas of the brain that do things that are very overt, uh, you know like uh, you know your amygdala fires up and you have this you know you you get into all this fear and anxiety your your prefrontal cortex lights up and you have this regulation. Um, but there are so many areas of the brain that do a lot of activity and are very important, but it's not sort of like they're not sort of heroic and dramatic. I, I would think that the cerebellum can fit into that. It happens in the background. It happens underneath. It's foundational. But it is actually uh, something that we can be aware of if we just know it. And that first thing you said is 3D. Can you expand a little bit more on that? Because I know things like NLP, they move people around and sensory motive, we, you know, we get them to take actions. Yeah, well, it, it's under the radar. And, I mean, we've known from the more traditional classical ways of understanding cerebellum that it's got to do with fine motor and learning procedural things and, and it's learn, learning to do uh, a systemic task. Like if you're learning to play the piano or you're learning a procedure, that that's sort of laid down in the cerebellum. And we, we thought, well, that's all it's got to do. But it turns out that there's much more, there's another layer to that. And the thing around that has, has shifted because uh, one of the things that we found out was that, that, it, that it comes into dreaming function. We used to think it was just motor function. And it's this, that we've now realised that the emotional wiring comes into the cerebellum as well. And the other thing that, that's happened is from a just simple structural point of view that we've found that the number of neurons in the cerebellum, there are twice as many neurons in the cerebellum as there are in the, the, the cerebrum. And so you've got to start saying, why has this little knob got twice as many neurons <laughs> as this other big knob? And so people have started asking the questions, well, why has this got an emotional wiring circuit? Why do all the emotional circuits go into this? And why has it got twice as many neurons? 
And so they've now started to figure out that there's a strong story going on emotionally in the cerebellum and there's also a strong function when it comes to reworking emotional patterns or patterns and reusing patterns, recalibrating patterns, and that leads into what we call template reworking and template formation and template calibration. So this is a framework where we can see in the brain a sense of emotions and movement um, having a place where they can interact and integrate perhaps. Um, but certainly this connection between emotions and movement is very strong in the, in the cerebellum. Is this a... Well, well yeah, let me put it this way. The, 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 the primary cause of emotion are like this. If this is if this is our primary emotions... Oh, so you're, a, a bunch of beautiful the ropes there you're hanging on to, yeah. yeah. There, there, there are four of them that, that make us feel good and there are three of them that will close us down. And there was a scientist that's been working on this, a fellow called Pansep, and he's shown that they, they primarily arise up in the amygdala hippocampus area in the upper part of the brain, but they send this little knob down through the cerebellum. And this little knob that goes into the cerebellum is where these emotional messages, these emotional templates get reworked. And you've got to say, well, why, why are they getting sent to the cerebellum to get reworked? Well, if you think that these are procedures, little procedures, little maps, the reason they're going to the cerebellum to be reworked here is that if the brain were to generate a signal around an emotion, like, say, fear or something or fright, and it had to send the signal from the cerebellum all the way down to your foot, check the signal out, and then bring it back, that would use a hell of a lot of energy. And that's not a good, efficient use of energy in the body because the brain is already using 20% of the energy in the body. So what it does, it runs the signal through a, a simulator. It says, can I do option A, can I do option B, or can I do option C? And it works out which option is the best option, which option is the, the most efficient. And it just runs that through the cerebellum, through a very small circuit, and goes boom, and sends the signal down. Now, what's interesting is that it also can do that very efficiently during dreaming. And in dreaming, you don't have the actual motor function going on, which is also conserving energy, because if you had your legs going full ball during your night's sleep, you'd consume a lot of your energy. So this can happen at nighttime because your brain puts your motor system into neutral at nighttime so it can try these different things out in a safe way. And it covers that up at night time by putting it into a metaphoric pattern. So it takes it into some procedure that normally your conscious mind can't think of. So it runs it through another pattern for you, tests the template out, and boom, you wake up in the morning with this funny notion of something to do. Now, I'll give you an example of that. While I was preparing this talk, I had all these different ideas running through my head and I was thinking, oh, my God, how am I going to do this? I've got 80, 90 slides. Oh, no, it's gone up to 120. I'm never going to get through all of this. What am I going to be doing? 
So one night when I was all these ideas were racing through my head, I thought, I'm never going to be able to pull this together. This is terrible. How am I going to cope? So I went to sleep one night and I'm having this dream. And in this dream, I'm lying in bed and Michelle Obama's lying beside me. Well done. Michelle, <laughs> what, what, what are you doing beside me for this? Obama's going to really get mad at you. What are you doing here? And and she says, it's all right, it's all right. And she began to, began to shrink. And then Obama was there. And he was running around the other end of the bed. He says, oh, don't worry about it. It's going to go away. And he began to shrink and become quite a small Obama. And he says, come on. And she began to shrink and joined him. And I thought, what a crazy thing to happen. But what was really interesting was the next morning I woke up and I found that I was able to summarise all of those 120 different slides into themes and I was able to condense the talk into a way that made a lot more sense. And it just fell into place very easily. Yeah, and choosing possibly the, you know, people who are iconic of of, of really good ideas and, you know, very active and progressive, mm. progressive sort of people. It's, it's, but this is so interesting, Stefan. And I know you're champing at the bit, Matt. I just just quickly my reflection that the mm. because this idea that See, we, we have a lot of talk about the basal ganglia with its automatic uh, sort of storage of actions and reactions mm-hmm. and, and thoughts. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not templates. They're not alternatives. They're just like the immediate first one, sort of the habitual mm-hmm. behaviours and things. Mm-hmm. This idea that natural problem solving, natural inner problem solving that uh, uh, Ernie Rossi uh, and I talk about so much, the cerebellum is a lot of part of this because it it allows the body to run templates and practice runs. Mm. How fascinating. That, that also ties in with the stuff that Pensep talks about because if we look at the hierarchy of those seven emotions, the emotions that open us up to new possibilities, uh, playfulness is at the top of that. Yes. Our capacity to play, our capacity to take something that that seems difficult or hard and turn it into something new. Interestingly enough, it's very similar to what Piaget talks about, taking something that's familiar and making it strange again. Yes. And it's How also it, it's, it's, it's taking something familiar and making it strange again. By the time I finished all of that and I started thinking about it, there was that lovely diagram I showed that 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 wonderful picture of that bridge across the river. Which yes, in the article, I yeah, hope you mm. get to show that. And towards the end, when we looked at the, that picture at the end, how we were, I was able to see how that oh, that was taking the familiar and making it strange, and bringing those templates up, and and reworking all of that, and calibrating that, and building those templates, and that. When you looked at that picture, you saw this wonderful picture of nature and this bridge, and we thought the river wasn't that important and it was just a bridge to get one side to the other. But maybe maybe the river was just as important to the ecology of the whole functioning of that ecosystem mm-hmm. because the whole of that ecosystem wouldn't survive without the river. And it's in, in that sense, it's a little bit like the cerebellum is, is the sort of underbelly of the brain because the brain's not going to function without that river, without, without that underbelly. 
and that, just and that flow, yeah, that flow that 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 feeds that that whole system, so the rest of it can also function. I'm just amazed at well, like you said, you know, there's twice as much neural density in the mm-hmm. cerebellum as there are is in the neocortex, and the the fact that that's got to be a flag that something serious is going on here. And as you're mm-hmm. talking about, you know, this is a kind of like a virtual playground for the mind to be able to run algorithms of what what could possibly happen. And like you said, in sort of in dream states. And I, as you're talking, I'm I'm trying to you know remember you know my different studies uh, to do with dreaming and uh, neuroscience, and I, I don't think there was a lot said about the cerebellum nothing in my in my studies no yeah have we have we just missed this i I don't know that we have but let me give you another clinical example i I had people i was seeing and they were going into a perpetual argument all the time and the more they added verbal words into the exchange they they were literally overloading their exchange and and in that exchange if you actually look at the neurobiology they're really overloading their um their their verbal processor and and they just had too much information they couldn't they couldn't get through to each other they were literally both in flooding states they were flooding themselves going over the same sort of infinity loop so i asked them to, to say well what was your what was your score out of 10 in terms of your angst or irritation with your partner, okay? And I don't want you to go into the, I said, just tell me where you are with this topic, tell me where you are with that topic. I don't want you to tell me the topic. And I said, now I want you to have the conversation with your partner for the next next couple of minutes. But instead of talking, I want you to just, just make sounds, and make sounds with one another and and translate the concern as a sort of a noise to each other and see if you can transmit the irritation without the words mm-hmm. and then check back in to see where you were to see if, if that had made any difference. And surprisingly, at the end of that sort of exchange, they had gone from like seven out of ten irritations down to four out of ten, and one was uh, eight out of ten that had gone down to a four out of ten. We place a lot of reliance on the verbal exchange as the only way of transacting and reducing stress, where sometimes I think we need to change the channel for the exchange, the communication we have between... And I think that's that's moving out of this kind of uh, what I call this fuse wire communication and bringing it onto broadband. Mm-hmm. It's changing the channel. And, and, and I'll, that's right. I said, now I want you to communicate with your partner at the end after this growliness, and I want you to tell your partner how it felt afterwards when you were able to express this message just by touch. So we, we took something that was familiar, which was yada, 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 using verbal, and changing it to the touch channel. So we changed the signalling process from the verbal channel to a sensory channel. Yes, and it's also motor channel as well. So Yeah, and motor channel, that's right, and movement. Right. And connection. 
So this is this is tying the cerebellum in more more so. Is that is that what you're getting at? That's what I'm getting at. Is that yeah. that, that we're trying trying this this different way of using this kind of intervention to to try to to try and use this. It's not saying this other stuff doesn't work as well. I think, but there's room for both. It's not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. But it, it's saying, okay, are there other ways that we can add to what we do when it comes to working with people? And run different and other, templates. Yeah, 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 different templates. The other thing that I found is that it's much less stressful working that way as a therapist. It's much more akin to being playful with folk and being attuned to them and being in a place where there's a sense of being playful with them, sort of having what's called Spillenraum, you know, sort of a a freeing space with them. This also ties in just with the ideas of of broaden and build, you know, Barbara Fredrickson's, that those um, those expansive, uh, more the playful, those those drives uh, that Panksek talked about, it's in the toward drives, uh, tend to expand you and open you out, and mm-hmm. of course that offers you, um, and so we can utilize those those lovely the, this expansiveness that's within, or the template nature, the the alternative nature in the in the cerebellum. Uh, so that's uh, that's and that's a really good example of that. And it's interesting that expansiveness relaxes us quite often. Yeah, it's, it's not it's not a, a, a golden rule. Depends on the circumstances, but by by shifting it from just the the the, the, the rigidity of of language, by moving it into then just sound and um, you know non specific, and then into touch, uh, you actually managed they actually managed to be able to find a calmness. Uh, that's mm. interesting too. Mm. I'm wondering, sort of, I'm, I might be going off on a bit of a tangent here, but the mm-hmm. cerebellum is um, lateralized. You know, mm-hmm. is there um, are there differences then in the left and right cerebellum in in what we're talking about? I'm not aware of of that. Um, but what was interesting just just prior to uh, you guys coming on, I was watching something on YouTube. And it was talking about um, one of the thing tricks for if you want to increase your memory. I think if your right hand, if you want to learn better, you squeeze your right hand, and if you want to recall, you squeeze your left hand. Right. So th- that's that that's kind of touched in with that. There's also some stuff uh, around with with a technique I found particularly helpful, and I'm not sure whether it's directly tied in with cerebellum, but it is tied in with the release of oxytocin, um, which is a technique called havening. Ah, yes, um, which yes. is that which is that that technique with breathing, and I found that particularly helpful, particularly during the COVID experience where people, uh, when I was working in the outpatients department uh, with Island Health, and there were a lot of people experiencing social isolation, um, particularly in anxiety states and some of the borderline folk. Um, and that that turned out to be quite soothing for a number of them. Um, 
because it was it, it tied tied them into breathing. It also gave them a sense of being able to self soothe their bodies and bring them into a, a place of being with themselves. Mm. Is that a type of um, bilateral stimulation? That that sort well, of sort well, I imagine. I mean, if we look at it. Um, I know the reading, and I can send you the article if you haven't seen the article that, that talks about how that sort of behaviour, this sort of behaviour and that sort of behaviour and this sort of stimulation with breath um, leads to quite strong oxytocin release, and I would imagine that's got movement tied in with it. And because it's bilateral and there's movement, that's also going to have a link to cerebellar as well as some cortical stuff. Mm. Yeah. Something that's a little bit interesting about Dev, for those who are just listening, what what Stefan did was he, he worked his hands on the side of the face, but he also crossed the hands working on the shoulders. And there's also a part of that work which is a, a, a using of the hands and the and the upper thighs uh, yes, instead yeah, of the legs. Yeah. And what is very interesting is that the insula, which is about our interoceptive, our sense of interoception, has got a, a high degree of sensitivity in the areas of the shoulder and the upper arms and the top thigh. And the the hands have got a very high sense of of outgoing framework. So really, by the outgoing energy of the hands going to the stimulating the inward energy of the um, of the of the insula has this beautiful calming effect and Asperger's and uh, autistics very often are seen doing that calming but mm. also we do it ourselves when when mm. when we uh, we are you know hyperactive and uh, mm. hyper hyper anxious mm. but it's a it's a wonderful and so Havening has has um, perhaps discovered it independently you know just by their own observations mm. but it is a beautiful natural thing that we've seen and you actually can go back to the Egyptian some of the Egyptian things, and you'll see quite a lot of that where they've got the arms crossed onto the shoulders with a holding a, a, a religious item of, of power. Mm. So, mm. so, you know, the, 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 I think the, this, this what always fascinates me is that the, um, our body has known and our body's been into this to itself for a long, long time, but it does take a while for us to uh, embrace the different elements of it uh, as we're doing here now with the cerebellum, which is a bit of a new story. Hmm. Well, I think our bodies, uh, there are various practices all through time where we've been able to do things. It's just that we're now developing the science of, of finding some of these things out. Like, for instance, one of the things that I found out, which was really interesting when it came to Harlow's monkeys, um, many of us learnt, you know, that, that the monkeys like to be close to a, were given the choice between food um, or the, the cloth object that could, that could nurture them, chose the cloth object that could nurture them. And I often wondered, well, whatever happened to those monkeys? And then I came across a book called The Three Pound Universe, and when, when you read into the, there's a wonderful chapter in that book that talks about they looked at the monkeys and followed them up and it showed how they did EEGs on those monkeys and it showed that there, there was very strong kindling in the brains of those monkeys 
and the kindling went from their limbic system to their cerebellum. And there was this strong limbic cerebellar link, this limbic cerebellar link. And I thought, oh, okay. So, and that's when I then started to look at, well, what's uh, what else gets linked to the cerebellum? And that's when I found out about the psychiatric disorder links. And I started looking at some of the journal items there and I noticed there are strong links with schizophrenia, anxiety disorders, and the, some of the different lobes tend to be clustered in some of the different lobes in in the cerebellum. Yes, um, we've got a nice uh, image of that in the in mm. in the article where you you mm. give a give an indication that there's, there's this midline type of uh, set of activities, and then there's these are also represented in the in the two lobes. Uh, and you you also described this that there's a degree of differentiation between the different areas and in, in the anterior aspects of it you've got a, a sort of that's more motor oriented and in the vermis the sort of the uh, if you could explain just that term the vermis but that's more affective but then in the posterior more cognitive and and empathetic. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that, if you kind of rolled, rolled the the stink, rolled the cerebellum out, it's like the front part has to do more with the anxiety aspects of of things going on in the cerebellum. The mid part has to do it with anxiety and pain and other emotions. the posterior part has to do with more cognitive things, more thinking parts, and, and more things around empathy. So mm. all those emotional things that I talked about earlier where those, those streams run into the cerebellum and out again, and so that's where all those templates run into the different parts of the cerebellum and those empathy pathways or those template pathways get worked on and come back out again. Yeah, yeah. So just to emphasize that, this is this is a place of reference of um, running algorithms, I guess, or maps, as you said, to give feedback then back to the neocortex and then to, I guess, if it's an emotion, then uh, or, or a, a motor response, then from the cortex through motor neurons and to the rest of the body. Yeah. Am I getting that right? That. I, I think so, but the other thing that, that that's starting to emerge is that remember the one of the other things that 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 I that I talked about is what I think the old version we had is this sort of this structuralism view of the cortex, where we said, oh, this is the motor cortex, this is the sensory motor cortex, this is the occipital cortex. We're now starting to think of neural uh, function areas or neural networks. Mm -hmm. And I think there are like about seven kind of primary networks and they each have specific functions that like you've got the prefrontal cortex and you've got the, the visual cortex and you've got a salient network and you've got the default neural networks. And all of these networks have different functions, but they all function with, with one another. And there, there's a certain um, functionality in having them be close to one another so that they can send messages to one another quickly and there's a certain efficiency. It's like when governments set up uh, hubs to function in different regions in the city, you'll have, uh, they'll set up, uh, you know, a hub in a port area and they'll set up a hub 
in an outer city area and they'll have a, have a hub in another. And there's certain functionality and the brain does similar things like mm. that. It makes, makes sense that these hubs function very effectively and we're now getting to the point where we're starting to be able to think about assessing those hubs and those hubs' functions and we're thinking in terms of how do we assess those hubs not only just through um, fMRIs, but also through electromagnetic uh, visualizations and and caps that you can wear to get an idea of, of just exactly what's going on in someone's brain. Yeah, yeah. Certainly, the network perspective is is so important when we when we look at lesions in either left or right hemisphere. A lesion in one little particular area it doesn't just impact geographically. You know, just around that that area, it can have far reaching implications because you put you you're cutting uh, a network um, mm. as opposed to just creating some damage in a little local area. So yeah, mm. yes, that that, mm. that you know, which is the negative impact we have with uh, certainly strokes, but also with the TIAs, the, the transient ischemic mm. attacks, just where you get a, a small area of the brain damage, but it can have a dramatic effect on um, on on broader broader network based activities, which is. Mm. And, and I was just sort of thinking too, and I, I'm really speculating here, so apologies for that. I may be completely off the, the mark, but but one of the things that uh, you know Matt and I for years have sort of said, to, you know, the, the the idea of a of an old brain, a, a newer brain, and then the very new cortex as separate entities is kind of uh, uh, misleading, even though um, they certainly do have that age of development, but they've they've integrated. So it, it may well be that the, the cerebellum in earlier species and earlier areas of evolution was very simple and was very uh, much related to just simple things. But, um, but the body doesn't just... The evolutionary development and change allows things to expand and develop and uh, uh, and and integrate new things which which clearly the cerebellum has been doing for a long time and we haven't been paying attention to it well the other thing uh, it's interesting once you start <laughs> reading into this the bits and pieces you pick up one of my colleagues was telling me he said the cerebellum sent, has connections to every joint to every golgi system in your body your golgi system it tests all the muscle strains in your body. The other thing is the the all of that is set up before you are born. Mm. Wow. Cerebellum pathways are set into your body before you're born. All that hard wiring is done in utero. So yeah. which is quite an incredible piece of wiring to think that, you know, when we develop and when we're born, that that whole system gets set up into a human, you know. Pretty fundamental. Wide yeah. like that. Yeah, that, that limbic, the limbic area tends to be mm. uh, done in utero, but but certainly... Mm. Certainly, it's uh, it's an engaged. I mean, we've really, really tapped on the tapped into this thing. And sure, now we scratched the surface of way we could go. But I think for this for this exposure now and this this discussion uh, now, and, and you know, we'll definitely have some more in time to come, Stefan. Mm-hmm. I um, 
I, I just wonder if there's, uh, as we round it out, if there's something we've particularly missed that that you that you want to put in, or whether it's just uh, if you've got some sort of rounding words of wisdom to uh, to leave us with as we consider this this fabulous uh, unthought of part of the brain. I think it just just invites us to to. Uh, to, to be open to the idea of, you know, that our brains are unfolding pieces of, of, of tissue that are not fixed entities, that, that, that they're capable of development. And, and if we kind of provide the right kind of stimulus to them, we, we, can, we can develop them. We can harness them. Very simple everyday tasks can can lead us into to ways of harnessing ourselves in different ways. And and novelty is one of one of the tools we can use. Like I I remember one of the things that surprised me was when when I had a whole lot of furniture to put together when I first reached my house here. Um, I, I had a whole lot of IKEA furniture and I started working on on different tasks and I I got through one piece of furniture and did three quarters of it and and stopped for 15 minutes and then started on another piece did three quarters of it stopped and stopped for 15 minutes and I must have had about eight or nine projects like that and I thought what on earth am I doing here and and then the next morning and I was literally exhausted at the end of the day, went to sleep. And the next morning I went boom, 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 boom and finished off about eight, eight projects very quickly. And it was only when I reflected afterwards, what was, why, why did that work so well that I realised that I, had prov- I, I only had attention for the task for a certain amount of time and then I needed some new novelty, some new new stimulus to motivate myself to do a new task. And by by keeping the novelty going, I was able to push myself through the task. That kept made the whole thing more playful and helped me sort of get a sense of being able to get through a demanding experience. Um, and so I think if we take tasks and we break it down and introduce novelty into it, hunking things down, you can move forward with things. And we we are likely to have fascinating things going on in fascinating areas of our brain, including the mm. fascinating cerebellum. Stefan, mm. thank you so much for your time today. This has given everybody lots of food for thought. Rush off, go read the article in the January uh, issue, and uh, that's another place to another step forward. And then uh, there's a whole bunch of reference points, and uh, you're given some extra reading. It, it's terrific. Yeah, fantastic. Okay. Thanks, Stefan. Thank you. Oh, there's a lot of stuff there, Matt. Um, mm. There's a lot of interesting stuff. Uh, you know, I, 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 you know, I know myself. I was being a bit speculative there. I was getting a bit mm. uh, idea oriented and triggered. So, so you know, let's really use this podcast as a as a, a as a springboard and a, and, a, and a, an ideas board for checking. But you know, I think Stefan knew what he was talking about a bit bit more. But yeah, uh, yeah. No, I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed that 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 idea of this sort of templates and running the you know this 
it's got a lot. I mean, there's a lot of neurons back there, and there, there, there are a lot of small, what we call interneurons, where the cerebellum is communicating with itself. That is a, is another interesting aspect. So that's great. Oh, yeah. Loved it. Look, a lot going on, and uh, if nothing more, let let this podcast just be a um, a, a peak your interest in the cerebellum. Uh, I know I certainly need to discover a lot more about this mm. part of the brain. It sounds really interesting. So uh, we'll we'll get some more from Stefan in the future about this, and we might write some more ourselves. So thank you, everybody, for joining us. Now, look, if you enjoy what we're doing here at the Science of Psychotherapy podcast, uh, we do have a platform uh, for psychotherapists, well, for, for mental health professionals, and we would love you to become part of the crew over there at the thescienceofpsychotherapy.net. We've got a whole bunch of learning material for you. We've got a magazine, which we've been producing since 2013. We've got videos, we've got course material. We'd love for you to be part of the tribe. Yes, I, I think it's not unreasonable to say it's one of the, the largest learning uh, content academies around. So do come in and check us out. There's a mm. lot to learn. And in that learning is how we grow and become rich as uh, both people and as therapists. Fantastic. Well, thank you, everybody, again, for joining us here on the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. And we'll catch you next time. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. For more great science, Go to the science of psychotherapy.com.